Good morning. Good to see everyone here. I know with all of the uh, preparations that are going on for the holidays and uh, all the things that we get caught up in, it's uh, easy sometimes not to pay attention to the most important things. And by being here today, you are indicating that you are paying attention to the things of greatest importance, particularly the salvation that has been brought to us by Jesus Christ. We're glad that you're here today to participate with us in our worship service. I was about to board a 14-hour flight from Chicago to Seoul, South Korea, and I wanted to be sure to have a little bit of extra leg room and that hopefully I would be where nobody could flop their seat back into my lap. Have you ever had that experience? And uh, so I went to the counter beforehand, and I just with a pleading voice, you know, said, could I please have a bulkhead seat? You know, that's the seats right behind the wall. And so you've got a little extra leg room. There's nobody in front of you. They can't flop back on you. And the agent said, yes, you've got a bulkhead seat. She writes something on the boarding pass, and I got on board only to find out I did not have a bulkhead seat. In fact, I was on the row behind the bulkhead seats where I could see them and, and keep thinking, you know, that person's in my seat. You know. Uh, I pled my case with a flight attendant, didn't do any good. She said, that's just, you know, there aren't any other seats, so this is it. And so I scrunched myself into the seat. At least it was an aisle seat, but, um, you know, very, very little leg room and, and got ready for the trip. Well, only to discover that the people in the two seats next to me it was a young Korean couple with a baby. And across the aisle and one row up were the grandparents. And so for the next 14 hours, there was uh, passing the baby back and forth with lots of crying. And the baby was doing some of the crying, too. And uh, there was just constant commotion. And I was, I was just really getting steamed about this. I thought, you know, this is absurd that, that I have to sit here for 14 hours with all this going on. And when I could have had that seat right up there, you know, and had that leg room and, and been much more comfortable. Well, I decided to immerse myself in reading and try to ignore the whole thing. I brought along with me a little book by my friend Philip Slate. It's called Lest We Forget, Many Biographies of Missionaries of a Bygone Generation. And in that book, Philip gives little two and three page mini biographies of missionaries who in the late 1800s and early 1900s left home to go to the Far East, to places such as Japan and China and to India, and they had to do it by boat. And uh, as I began to read, the first one of those stories was about a woman named Sarah Shepard Andrews. Sarah Shepard Andrews was a native of Dixon, Tennessee. She was a very small woman, and she was never in good health, and her health got worse as her, her life went on. But on Christmas Day, in 1915, Sarah Shepard Andrews set sail from Vancouver, Washington for Japan, intending to not ever come back. You see, most of the folks who sailed away to be missionaries in those days didn't plan to ever come home. They didn't expect to ever see their loved ones again. They were committing their lives to the mission fields in which they were going. And that's what Sarah had in mind. She did have to come back a couple of times and get some treatment for her, her ill health, but for the most part, she stayed in Japan until her death in 1962. She was there when World War II broke out, 
And the Japanese government warned all foreign nationals, particularly Americans, to get out of Japan, and she would not. She insisted on staying there and ministering to the people uh, that she had grown to love and the people whom she came to serve. And during that time, she led a lot of people to Christ and was instrumental in helping begin numerous churches throughout Japan. And several years, for several years, she lived in a house that didn't even have any heat in it until finally some folks back home found out about it, and they had a, a prefabricated house shipped over to her and constructed so that she could at least have a solid house with heat in it even though she was getting old and, and she was uh, in such uh, ill health. She wouldn't leave during World War II, and so she was in prison. They let her out uh, after a while because they realized she certainly was not a danger uh, to them, and she went about ministering to everyone. Finally, in 1962, she passed away, and at her request, she was buried in her beloved Japan. She never did go back home other than for those very brief visits and she was buried in that land where she had endured so much hardship. And as I read the story of Sarah Shepard Andrews, all of a sudden my non-bulkhead seat in passing the baby didn't seem like anything. And I was ashamed. I was ashamed because her voyage to Japan lasted a week longer than my whole trip to South Korea. You know, we haven't talked a lot in the church, at least not in the U.S., about suffering. We don't like the topic. We don't like to hear about it. We don't like to think about it. We try to exclude it. We even have some preachers and some churches that exclude it from their theology. God wants everybody to be well, and he wants everybody to be happy, and he wants everybody to be wealthy. But we keep looking at Scripture, and we just find that's not true. And so the subject keeps coming back to us over and over again. And one place where it does is in the letter of 1 Peter. We may not think much about suffering, but Peter thought about it a lot. In fact, it's one of the central themes of his letter. The verb to suffer, the Greek word, is found 12 times in the book of 1 Peter. There's only 41 occurrences of it in the entire New Testament. And 12 of them are in this brief letter of five chapters. The noun for suffering occurs four times. There's only 16 times in the whole New Testament, one-fourth of those in this letter. It's clear that suffering was very much on Peter's mind as he wrote 1 Peter. Why? Because he was writing to aliens and exiles. He was writing to people who were living in a culture that was toxic to their faith. He was writing to people who were living in a world very much like our world, that was uh, not only uh, indifferent to their faith, but more than that, worse than that, but was hostile to their faith. And when you're in that kind of situation and you're in that kind of environment, there's going to be suffering. If you're serious about staying close to Jesus, there's bound to be some suffering. After all, didn't Jesus himself say, if anyone would come after me, let him, what, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? And that cross is not a piece of jewelry. That cross is, a, is a, an instrument of execution. So suffering is a part of our faith, whether we like to think about it or not. Just like today, some people suffer more than others. So it was in Peter's time. 
Now, remember in chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter had said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good works, they'll be caused to give glory on the day of visitation. They'll be caused to praise God because of you. So keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable, knowing that Jesus sent us into this world and told us to live here. And he says, be subject, therefore. Be subject, therefore, first of all, he says, to governing authorities. And, and he, then he talks about that, and we discussed that uh, last week. But then he addresses a specific group of Christians in verse 18 who were likely to suffer, and that was the slaves. Now, that's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, but this was a big problem in the early church because a lot of the early Christians were slaves. The gospel appealed to slaves. The gospel offered them freedom in Christ. The gospel offered them the love of God. And the fact that they mattered, that they counted to God. And besides that, there were so many slaves. There were bound to be a lot of them to be converted. It's been estimated that from one-third to possibly even one-half the population of the Roman Empire in the first century world were slaves. And so you naturally ended up with a lot of slaves in the church. And so what were they to do? Because they sometimes faced abuse and sometimes faced suffering. There were a lot of ways that people could become slaves. There were four primary ones. One was to be taken captive in war. There was constant warfare. And you didn't just win the war and then go home. You won the war and then you took slaves and you took them home. And so that was one way to become a slave. Another way was when people wanted to expose uh, infants that they didn't want. They'd take them out to some place like the garbage dump. And they would just leave them exposed there. And if someone wanted them, they'd go get them and raise them as a slave, perhaps to become a prostitute. But they would raise them as slaves because they were not wanted by their parents. Another way to become a slave was by being, of course, born to slave parents, and then you were automatically a slave. Another way was by having unpayable debts. And you just couldn't pay your debts, and so you would sell everything you had, and then finally you've got nothing left except yourself, perhaps your family. So you may sell part of your family or sell your whole family and yourself into slavery. It was an awful thing. It was a horrible institution, but it was deeply embedded in the Roman economy. The Roman economy could not function without its slaves. And so Peter has to take into account that when he says to live an honorable life before the Gentiles, a lot of the folks that he's telling to do that are slaves, and they are suffering. There were a lot of levels of slavery. Some slaves worked in the mines and in agriculture. They would probably die within the first two or three years. They would be literally worked to death. Others would become household slaves, and they might be treated better. Others who had uh, serviceable skills might actually rise to some kind of prominence. They might even become wealthy but still be slaves. So there were varying levels of it, and there were varying levels of treatment. Some people were very harsh to their slaves. Others could be very kind to their slaves. And things were somewhat better for them in the first century than they had been in, in previous centuries, but there was still wide latitude for abuse. So what does Peter say to Christian slaves trying to live honorably in the presence of Gentiles? He says, slaves, be subject to your masters. 
and not just to the good ones, but even to the harsh and the unjust ones. And we hear that, and it grates on us. And we think, why? And how could you tell anybody that? And why does he tell them that? And the answer is in verses 19 and 20. He said, it is a gracious thing when you endure unjust suffering. Literally, he says, it is grace. It is grace when you suffer unjustly. It is grace when you're trying to do the right thing, and yet you suffer even though you try to do it. And we've all experienced that to some degree, not as slaves, but we've all experienced times when we tried to do the right thing and got kicked in the teeth for it. That happens. But to a slave, it could happen on a daily basis. And Peter says it's a gracious thing when you, you do that, uh, when you suffer unjustly. And think how that often that could happen to a slave. For example, a, a slave might be wanting to go and worship and they might be punished for it. Or they might be caught praying by a pagan master and be punished for praying. Or the master might want them to bow down to his household pagan gods and they might refuse and be punished as a result. Or to do something else that was against their Christian faith. And so Peter says to them, Always do the right thing, and if it means enduring suffering from these masters, whether they are just or unjust, he says it's a gracious thing when you do it. It's a gracious thing, even if it costs you dearly. But again, we wonder, how can he say something like that? How can he urge people to accept unjust punishment and see it as a gracious thing in the sight of God? It just really goes against our sensibilities. But first, we've got to recognize there wasn't really anything Peter could do about this. Peter couldn't change that institution. Peter could not wave his apostolic hand and all of a sudden the slaves are freed, even among Christians. He wasn't able to do that kind of thing. Besides, notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 12, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. In other words, live in a way that does not cause, uh, bring uh, unnecessary negative feedback from the people around you. He didn't want it, that, didn't want Christianity to appear to be some kind of renegade sect that had come along to reform society by having a slave uprising or a slave revolt. He didn't want to see that because that's not what they were about. You know, down through history, people have misunderstood what Christianity was about. And they thought, well, it's about changing this social situation or correcting this injustice or that. And hopefully along the way, all those things do get changed and do get, do get uh, corrected. But the reality of it is that's not what our faith is about. Our faith is about following Jesus Christ. Our faith is about proclaiming the gospel our faith is about preaching one who died for our sins and rose for our justification. That's what our faith is about, and Peter knew that. And he knew that if he got off on these other things, it was not only going to get the attention off the gospel, it was going to make things harder on the slaves. Because just imagine if people thought, oh, okay, I've got this slave who's a Christian, and I know what they're all about. So they're going to really crack down on that one. They're going to make it even harder on them. And Peter didn't want to see that happen. 
So the fact that we're supposed to keep an honorable conduct among the Gentiles is one reason he says it. But I want you to look at verses 21 to 25 because he has an even higher reason for saying it. That's the example of Jesus. To this you have been called, he says. And I want us to pay attention to that because if we believe Scripture, we believe it applies to us. He's speaking to us. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Not just in the fact that he suffered, but in the fact that he suffered unjustly. Nobody ever suffered more injustice than Jesus. Nobody. Not all the collective suffering of the world could outdo the unjust suffering that Jesus experienced. When he was abused and shamefully treated, it wasn't because of any wrong he had done. It was because of what we have done. And so he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He died for our sins. He accepted the suffering that we deserve. And so Peter says, and listen to the echo here. Listen to the echo from Isaiah 53. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's our faith. That's the core. That's it. That Christ suffered and died for us. And Peter says, when he did so, he left us an example to follow in his steps. Now, you and I can't die for the sins of other people. But we can, we can respond to suffering in the same way that Jesus did. So let's look at what Peter says about that. He says, first of all, he committed no sin. He committed no sin. He didn't do or say anything that would have justified his death. Even Pilate, over and over again, goes out to the people who are accusing Jesus and says, I find no crime in him. Think how easy it would have been for Jesus as we sometimes think, if I'm going to be punished this way, I might as well do something wrong. If I'm going to be mistreated, then that gives me a right to do wrong. Do you ever find yourself thinking that? Things aren't right at work. I'm being treated the wrong way, so I'll cheat. Somebody does me wrong, and so I'm going to do wrong to them. That's not being like Jesus. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When those people came to arrest him in Gethsemane, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I'm he. Wouldn't it have been easy? You know, it was in the dark and they didn't know what he looked like. Wouldn't it have been easy for him to kind of pull his cloak up around close to his face and say, I think he just went that way. 
If you hurry, you can catch him. But he didn't do that. He didn't lie to them. And when he was before Pilate, and Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? Because that's the accusation that was being made against him. Jesus didn't deny it. He said, You have said so. And the way that you understand that, Pilate, that's what you've said. Peter says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. I can't imagine how tempting that must have been. When the soldiers were mocking him and hitting him and spitting on him. When he was hanging on the cross and the people walked by and made fun of him. And said, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He claims to be the son of God. If he is, he ought to come down from the cross. Suffering all that mistreatment, Jesus did not revile in return. We have not one word that he ever said against any of them. No name calling, no reviling, no nothing. He accepted it. When he suffered, Peter says, he did not threaten. You know, Jesus not only could have threatened, he could have made the threats stick. He was hanging there on a cross, but as the old song says, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have made threats to those people who were abusing him. He could have struck them all dead. He could have made an example out of all of them. And who would blame him if he did? But the fact is, he didn't. But Peter says he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, he was willing to let God take care of it in his own time and in his own way. He just trusted it to the Father and let it go with that. So Peter says, to this you have been called. And when he said that, he was saying it to you and to me as well. As we live in this fallen world, in a toxic-to-faith world, we're called to experience suffering in the way Jesus did. Now, that doesn't mean we need to try to suffer. We don't need to do that. If we just walk closely enough to Jesus, it's going to happen. But it's about the way that we endure that suffering and experience that suffering when it happens. To be like Jesus when unjust suffering comes our way. I find myself often praying and asking God to make me more like Jesus. Because there's so many ways that I need to be made more like Jesus. And as I'm praying that, I can't help but think about passages like 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. And, and I'm almost tempted to say, Lord, make me like Jesus, except, except when it comes to suffering. You know, that's the question. Do we really want to be like Jesus? We talk about it. We sing about it. We read scriptures about it. But do we really want to be like him? Do we really want to imitate him in our own lives? Do we really want to be like him in every way? Are we willing to suffer as he suffered? Are we willing to respond to suffering as he responded to it? 
And none of us is ever going to completely be like Jesus in this respect, but that's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge that's out there before us, is to be like him and to endure suffering as he endured it whenever it comes. Of course, it's not all about the suffering. It's also about what's on the other side of it. And that's how we're able to endure the way Jesus endured, by looking past it, looking beyond it, thinking about what comes next when the suffering is over. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What was Jesus thinking about as he endured the suffering? What enabled him to do it? He was thinking about the joy, the joy that was going to come later. And so he said, you know, this is, this is nothing. This is nothing. He despised the shame. And he looked forward to the joy of his father's kingdom. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you really want to be like Jesus? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. If you're ready to do that, we're ready to help you. We invite you to come while we stand to sing. I can hear.